Hello and welcome to Living in Exile, a podcast for those who are in the world but not of the world, and in the church but not of the church. My name is AJ Farley, and along with Amanda Hope Haley, I host this podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about Nehemiah chapter 2, discussing the idea of how Nehemiah got to be a man of action after waiting for a period of time. So, without further ado. Well, tell us about Nehemiah chapter 2. All right. Well, at the start of Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah is talking to the Persian king Artaxerxes and getting permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. He found out in chapter 1 from uh, some of his his fellow Israelites, his fellow Jews, that there had been an attack and that the, the entire wall was in ruins. So we ended with Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8 last time. And so we're going to pick up in verse 9 today. All right. And in the um, Nehemiah's position, he serves as the cupbearer to the king. Mm-hmm. And so we've kind of speculated in the past. or not really speculated exactly. I've speculated. You've actually researched this and found it to be true that the, the <laughs> cupbearer was a person of some influence in the king's life. He would have been like the king's aide. He would have been there 24-7 basically. Mm-hmm. And other people would have come and gone to give the king their suggestions, their recommendations. The king would have made decisions based on on their input, but he always had the cupbearer sitting beside that he could have turned to and said, hey, Nehemiah, what would you think in this instance? Nehemiah could have expressed those things. We don't know for sure that that actually happened, but certainly Mm -hmm. Nehemiah was privy to a lot of the information that would have taken place, a lot of the exchanges that would have taken place in the king's presence. Absolutely. So, go ahead. He he would have been even just privy to the king's mood. You know, he could have just sat back and waited for a good time to kind of jump in and, and say what he needed to say. So he was just Very kind of so. in the know. And I love the idea of Nehemiah is like a wise sommelier. You know, he's just sitting there picking the wine <laughs> and, and all of that, <laughs> which is pretty... not something I ever grasped before. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a pretty good pretty good job he has there. It is. It is. Let me help the king with his wine selection, and let me give him advice on how to run the country as well, and That's he'll right. actually listen to me. That's right, <laughs> because Nehemiah probably wasn't drinking the wine. So. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, other than that first sip, little sip, perhaps. yeah. So, well, speaking of the king's mood, and speaking of uh, of uh, you know being able to read the king maybe better than some of the other folks, we touched last week on the notion of this gathering that takes place, the celebration that was taking place at the beginning of chapter two, and it's the the People are gathered together. It's New Year's. It's the New Year's festival, which is at the time in that era, that's when you would have celebrated the king's birthday as well mm-hmm. and just celebrated another year of the king being awesome. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the folks were doing. And Nehemiah is uh, is there, and the king realizes that Nehemiah does, is not his usual jovial self. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about the the idea there of it was important for Nehemiah to play this just right. Mm -hmm. The king would have been 
would have been very much aware of what was going on around him. If there was somebody that looked, you know, that was whispering over in the corner or someone looked the least little bit sideways from how the king would have been expecting them to be, um, that would have been a that would have been a bad thing for that person. So Nehemiah had to sort of play this just right in his presentation to Artaxerxes. He makes said presentation to Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes says to him, well, what is it that you want? What do you need? So Nehemiah lays everything out, and now, as Amanda said, we left off in verse 8 of chapter 2, and so now we're getting ready to follow Nehemiah back to Jerusalem, if you will. Yep, we sure are, and it takes all of one verse, all of that build-up <laughs> for the question and the one little scene, and apparently it went well. <laughs> verse 9 says, And so I left, journeying to see the governors of the lands beyond the Euphrates River. I gave them the letters the king sent with me. That was one of the things that Nehemiah had asked for. Moreover, I traveled in the company of the king's army, surrounded by the officers and the cavalry. And that is all. <laughs> and there you have it, folks. And there he is. He's in Jerusalem. That is all. <laughs> how long How long would that trip have taken for him to, re to have returned to Jerusalem? Or do we know? Oh, I'm thinking three weeks, but I'm not sure that's right. I don't know. I don't know off the okay. top of my head. Oh, we could know that. I mean, that's that's something very knowable. It's discernible. Oh, absolutely. In fact, it may even say in Ezra... Remember. Where they did it, but off the top of my head, I don't remember. Okay, but we're not talking—we're not talking about a, a three-mile walk. But oh we're no, also, we're also not talking about a four-month journey like some of the other travels that we see in scripture. Right. We're talking. I mean, he. Let's see. They are not in Babylonia. They are in the Summer Palace. Oh well. I mean, Stump. they're basically. You have basically. I mean, they're in the western part of. Iran, if you want to think of it that way, and they're going to Jerusalem. Okay. So basically they have to cross Iraq. Yeah, so three weeks sounds about right, actually, for that trip. Yeah. On foot. I think that's right. Okay, okay. Well, I'm sorry, that's not actually crucial to our discussion. It's just that's it occurred okay. to me that that was part of, the, part of the question that could be asked. And that's a very simple thing that I should know, actually, but nah. Sorry. I have such high expectations for you, Amanda. So sorry. I, as my mother says, I am not a dictionary. <laughs> I guess encyclopedia in this case. Encyclopedia so. Amandica. Oh, dear. <laughs> All right. So moving right along, tell us a little bit about some of the foreshadowing of future problems that could, could have arisen. Well, once again, it's in one verse. Our our narrator, or well, Nehemiah, um, is the narrator through here. He's he's not spending a whole lot of time on these things. Uh, chapter ten reads: In fact, when Sanballat the Horonite who governed Samaria and Tobiah the Ammonite official under him there heard about what was happening, and the what was happening being him coming from Persia. They were unnerved, distressed that someone was seeking the good of the Israelites left in the land. So we have one little verse there where those guys are mentioned, and they're going to come back into it right at the end of chapter 2. Mm. So both Nehemiah and Ezra, from time to time, it's like there are, there are periods where they just lay out long passages, and then there are other times where they just in two sentences say really meaningful stuff that you kind of expected them to elaborate on, and they didn't. 
Mm-hmm. And it seems like in verse 9 and verse 10, in both of these instances, it's like, yep, we made the trip, and everything went fine. And then, mm-hmm. in, verse, <laughs> and then in verse 10, yeah. and then these guys showed up, and they kind of made it sound like they might be making trouble for us. And here's mm-hmm. the thing. Okay. Yeah, well, and they haven't actually shown up at this point. In fact, he's, I guess he's writing from a third-person omniscient perspective, if you will, um, <laughs> because these guys haven't actually seen him yet. They just heard about Nehemiah coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll actually encounter them encounter them um, at the end of the chapter. I would love so. to be able to speak from and write from the third-person person omniscient perspective more frequently in my life. I would love to be the outside narrator who knows exactly what's going on and speak with confidence to the thing instead of being the hapless player in the middle of the play who has no idea that he's about to be sacked or something like that. So. Um, I believe in my world we call those people editors. <laughs> <laughs> Those people call themselves editors. That's right. That's editors right. call themselves omniscient third people. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Moving right along. Now that we've taken a swing at – isn't your manuscript in the hands of an editor right this minute? It is. It, and, and maybe even multiple editors. I'm not and sure. Sh- and shouldn't you be a little bit more guarded about the things that you say about editors at this point oh. in your life perhaps? <laughs> I meant it positively that the editor is omniscient. The editor knows all. Yay, editors! You don't even sound serious when you're saying it that right now. No, you don't, I really you do. Don't, you don't really sound like you believe that. it. No, I'm sorry. You sound well. Facetious. Okay, I don't. I mean, like, okay, yes, I'm making a joke because I've been an editor myself, and clearly, I'm not omniscient. But <laughs> I, I mean, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> I'm front. I'm giving you all the rope you need to hang yourself. You are. Right you really air. are. And I, I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> okay. well, do you have a question or comment you'd like to send to us at the Living in Exile podcast? You can contact us through our Facebook pages, Amanda Hope Haley or AJ Farley Speaks. What do we know about these men? What do we know about the folks that are named in verse 10? Okay, well... Um, Sambalat, we know from his name, just simply the spelling, uh, that he he comes from uh, Babylon, Babylonia, um, yeah. which then he's governing Samaria. So what can be inferred from that then is he or possibly his, well, no, probably his family, his ancestors were brought into the region of Samaria um, after... Either well, either after Nebuchadnezzar's conquest, or even before that, maybe when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. Either way, uh, his family—they were transplants in the area, so um, they are not ethnically Jews. Um, but he's, you know, governing what used to be the northern kingdom of Israel, and okay. then Tobiah—that is a Jewish name, or a, well, a Hebrew name—and it's possible. Well, okay, they have him identified here as an Ammonite, which means that he is not a Hebrew, but the fact that he has a Hebrew name means there's at least some tradition within his family of following Yahweh as God, which may have been adopted you know, in the last generation or something okay. like that. So Tobiah is kind of a secondary character. Sanbalat is, is the big baddie, and um, Tobiah is the guy kind of walking along behind him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tobiah is the lieutenant behind Sanbalat. Sure. Mm-hmm. Words to that effect. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Right. And then the the last of the officials. Oh, let's see. Yeah. The, Geshem, but he's not mm -hmm. named in that one. He's not he's named, not named there. He's going to come into it later. But, you know, I mean, we can go ahead and talk about him. We're going to run into him in verse 19. Okay. Geshem is actually on on record. He, um, here in the Bible, he's listed as the Arab Geshem. But in non-canonical sources, it's known that he was actually a pretty powerful guy. The He was practically a king in his own right, and he was over Lower Egypt, which means the northern end of Egypt. The map of Israel, the map of Egypt always feels backward to me because Lower Egypt is in the north and Upper Egypt is in the south. Um, it's actually in reference to the direction that the Nile River runs, but if I look right. at a map, that just seems backward to me. So he's ruling yeah. Lower Egypt, and then the region of Persia that is just to the east of where Jerusalem is. So, I mean, he's got a pretty big chunk of land. And so you, you've got him kind of to the south and to the east. And then you've got Sambalat, who's ruling Samaria. He's to the north. And so Israel's kind of surrounded by these governors. And from their perspective, not knowing who this Nehemiah guy is, it kind of looks like maybe Artaxerxes is sending one of his men into the heart of this region to shake things up, to maybe shake their power. They, they see this as potentially threatening. Okay. So the three, the three folks who were in power in this area surrounding Jerusalem at this point mm -hmm. would have looked at Nehemiah coming in and thought, oh, here comes... Uh, a representative of Artaxerxes. It might have made them question why would Artaxerxes be sending somebody at this point in mm -hmm. in uh, in the story? Mm -hmm. What would Artaxerxes' motivation be for doing this? Is there something he's unhappy with this uh, about that we don't know about, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So definitely. So Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah ostensibly because Nehemiah asks for the job. Nehemiah mm -hmm. at the right. at the party asked for the job, but Artaxerxes probably had his own rationale for sending Nehemiah as well. It's not as if Artaxerxes would have acted, you know, without any thought to his own situation and how sending Nehemiah might have improved his situation. That's absolutely true. Because toward uh, the middle of Ezra, you have Artaxerxes sending Ezra and there are the four commands from the Persian government of the things that need to be accomplished there and so it's you know possible it, it, it's probable that Nehemiah is going yes to rebuild the walls but to kind of check up on the status of that too find out how Ezra's work is coming along yeah mm -hmm. okay. and more importantly you know find out how you know the king's edict is being enacted. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, it, that, I mean, that would have been a perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and not the least of which was making sure that Artaxerxes got the, the tribute he was owed mm -hmm. from, from Jerusalem and from the Sumerian areas. So. Absolutely. Yeah, and these guys, we have you know, previous evidence of them in Ezra threatening Jerusalem um, with, well, I mean, you know, obviously warring with them enough that the wall has come down. You know, Artaxerxes maybe has reason to believe that they're kind of troublemakers who aren't 100% supporting him if, you know, rulers of one of his provinces are attacking another province. That's okay. clearly not going to be sanctioned by Artaxerxes. Okay. So, there's so there's a lot of different um, 
people have their own rationales for doing what is happening here. Absolutely. Right? Nehemiah has his reasons for wanting to go. Artaxerxes for, has his reasons for saying yes to the thing. Mm -hmm. These three rulers in the region have plenty of questions about why Nehemiah is there and why Artaxerxes would have sent him. Mm -hmm. And so let's pick up the story then. T mm -hmm. Tell us about the interaction uh, that takes place between those folks or how is it that, that those folks are viewing Nehemiah? Well, to to begin with, there is an interaction. Nehemiah enters the land and he does every as much in secret as he possibly can. Uh, he clearly is aware that these guys are out there. Since they are powerful men, you can assume that they have allies or maybe even spies living in Jerusalem, people who are going to report back to them. And so we see Nehemiah going into Jerusalem under the cover of night, riding a donkey, investigating the condition of the wall, the condition of the city to see just how bad things are so that he can come up with an idea in secret and you know, present a fully fleshed out idea before his enemies can really even find out about it and get involved and mess things up. So Nehemiah is, is touring the city mm -hmm. trying to find out exactly how things are and sort of formulating his plan for what he's going to do moving forward, mm -hmm. but as much as possible he's trying to keep that below the radar screen of the folks in Jerusalem. Absolutely, yes. Um, and he does this pretty quickly. I mean, he he gets there, he rests for three days after his trip when he gets to Jerusalem, and then you, from the way the text reads, it looks like he goes out one night, and only one night, and tours the city, and then... We don't know how much time elapses between him doing that and him speaking to the Jews, but it's entirely possible it was the next morning. Um, so he he comes up with a, a plan pretty quickly and announces it to the Jews and gets support. And this is interesting to me because we see in, in Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 a man who waits for months before speaking to the king who is so meticulous with his planning you know he knows exactly what he's going to ask the king for you know long before he does it and here he comes in he sees the situation and he moves very quickly he's still mm -hmm. smart about it but you know you could say he was almost flying by the seat of his pants a little bit huh which is which seems out of character for him based on the mm -hmm. on the way that we see him presented in chapter one and in the beginning of chapter two Right. So, I mean, I think it's neat the juxtaposition between this calm, cautious person and then this man who's also, I mean, inspired and ready to work. Yeah. Um, so there's just in. two different sides of him. Right. Jumps right into action when the time comes. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting notion to me because I, 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 I wish I was a person who, who knew when the right time was to act more frequently than I seem to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it seems like there are a lot of times when, you know, in hindsight, I should have acted more quickly to curb a situation that I saw, mm -hmm. or I should have acted more vigorously as soon as I knew something was a problem, but instead I waited a little while to see it play out or mm -hmm. to see how the wind was going to blow a little bit, and I ended up waiting too long to actually do some meaningful thing about that. Mm -hmm. I don't I guess I don't have any main point there, but it's just interesting to me to see Nehemiah acting in two sort of very different ways depending on what he thought the situation called for. Absolutely. And I, 
with I guess I say the exact opposite about myself I think I'm the person who I, I want to take action as soon as I see a problem I want to deal with it and deal with it right right now when sometimes it is more prudent to wait and pray for four months so I'm, I'm kind of the opposite of you which is funny knowing our personalities I would think it would be the other way I would think I would be the calm quiet patient one and I'm really not when it comes to trials shall we say yeah, yeah. I want to take action immediately yeah and I'm the kind of person, normally I would, in many area, other areas of my life, I'm impulsive mm -hmm. and impetuous and that kind of thing. But it seems like sometimes in my leadership style is one to just kind of let things go for a little while just to see if they'll resolve themselves or, or, yeah. or to see if a thing is going to see how a situation develops a little bit before I step in. And, and in my life, I am a planner. I think about everything. My husband teases me. When we got married, I said, when we buy furniture, I want it to be quality furniture. I want it to be solid wood. Um, and that's something that's really difficult to find these days. I mean, even Ethan Allen only sells furniture that have veneers. You just can't get a solid piece of mahogany anymore, or it's very mm -hmm. difficult. And we and I said, like, I don't care how long it takes. We'll save money. I want something quality. We finally bought our bedroom furniture um, about a year ago. And I waited nine years. It was nine years of squirreling money away and waiting, but we got it, and it's it's heirloom quality. And hopefully, I'll pass it down to all those children. I'm not gonna have. Hmm. And it's but, a shame to eat. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that's the irony in it. Could, but, yeah, I was I mean, gonna say you caught me off guard for a minute there. <laughs> I am a supreme planner. I love planning. And but when it when there's a fire in my belly about something and usually, you know, when people around me are hurt or, you know, when something's going on at the church or really church and family, those two realms is I, I want to take action immediately. I want everything fixed now, 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 so we can go back to being mm. calm, cool and collected. Yeah. Isn't that funny? That'd be nice swarm. <laughs> well the funniest thing to me in that is the the notion of you and David sleeping on on a mattress on the floor for nine years. I know that's not what you were doing, but that's we the had, picture had I the had. Rails. In mind. Yeah. Oh, you had, had the frame. Yeah, we had the frame. That was good. <laughs> so there was no headboard, footboard on your bed for nine years. Is that what you're telling me? I actually technically there still isn't. We actually didn't buy the bed. Um, we got. <laughs> we couldn't afford it. <laughs> We're building this bed one piece at a time. Within the next five years, we're going to have the bed finished. <laughs> well, uh, you're mean. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm just I, repeating back to you what I understood you to say. Okay, well, yeah, I, I could see how you took it that way. <laughs> uh, we, uh. we actually together made a headboard actually several years ago, like an upholstered headboard that we hung on the wall. But actually, what we bought for the bedroom were the peat, like the the end table or the what the side. What do you call those things? The nightstands. Nightstand. The nightstands and the dresser and the bureau. Oh, um, so okay. the, those big pieces. And actually, we picked out the suite. It comes. You don't want to know about my furniture. Why am I talking I'm, about my furniture? I'm fascinated by this. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> One day we'll have the four-poster bed. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. There Sorry. it is. Nah, that's fine. I, I baited you into that, so I got nothing to say. I'm a planner. I'm a planner. But you know well, who was is. not baited in this story? Nehemiah. Ah, segue. Yes. Nicely done. 
Thank you, thank you. Oh, except we're not quite ready for that part yet, so we got to back up. <laughs> Non-segue. Forget no. we said segue. Okay. Well, uh, okay. Tell us where we are then. If we're not okay. ready for the segue yet, move us along. Okay. So um, Nehemiah has gone around. He has taken stock of what's going on in Jerusalem, and his next move is to talk to the Jews. And the text kind of goes to links to explain that it's you know not just the leaders; it's everybody. It's the common Jews. Com commoners, if you will, the priests, the nobles, and the leaders alike. And what exactly is meant by the words that are translated nobles and leaders isn't really known, but the point is it was everybody in the population that he announces to them in verse 17, our trouble is obvious. The wall of Jerusalem has been reduced to piles of rock and its gates consumed by flame. Let us begin by rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, and in doing so we will demolish our disgrace because of a defeat and exile. So that's what he says to him, and then uh, Nehemiah comes out of his speech and narrates to us readers that he explained to them how, basically what had happened in Persia and how God had motivated him to get him there, and that basically... God has done all of this. Artaxerxes, you know, has been his tool. And, you know, by extension, now the Jews are about to be because they respond immediately, quickly, with very few words and very positively, get up now. It is time to rebuild. So the Jews are all on board. Yes, yes, let's do it. It's interesting to me how quickly they respond. And Nehemiah, at least what he records for us here, is such mm -hmm. a brief it's a tiny little speech. Yeah. The trouble is obvious. The wall's been reduced to piles of rock. Let's fix it. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so and then they just respond right away. And it makes me think that Nehemiah might have been tapping into a latent sort of feeling that the Jews had there in Jerusalem. They had kind of grown, maybe that they had grown tired of seeing these, you know, stepping over the piles of rocks that sh where the wall should have been and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Is I, that possible? Do you have any I, sense of that? Absolutely it is. And I mean, these are these are people who have watched, you know, their parents um, and some of them themselves be involved in the rebuilding of the temple, too. So, yeah, I, I think that's completely fair. And um, Nehemiah goes so far as to say, so they began the good work. Nehemiah is really, really quick to give up all credit. No matter who he's talking to or what it's about, he's not taking credit for himself. You know, he announces this to the Jews. God did it. You know, now he's telling us about the built rebuilding of the wall. They did it, meaning the Jews. So yeah, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I've heard it said it's amazing how much you can get done when no, when it doesn't matter who gets the credit for the thing getting done. Hmm. Oh. And, and Nehemiah stepping in here, in, in essence, Nehemiah saying, "Look, God's at work. the The king was the king was kind to me." And you know now now we've got a situation where we can actually f move to fix this problem. Let's mm -hmm. get to it. And then he was quick to give the Jews credit for their for their rapid response. If you mm -hmm. will, they went right to work. Absolutely, absolutely. Um. So you know the pace of this is very interesting. I mean, you, they they spend just. I mean, I'm I'm guessing this by looking at the text, but just as many words are spent on what is said in this one conversation and about the story that happens overnight as opposed to, you know, in the previous story, four months of waiting and praying and all of that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah I'm not that, sure why I made that point. 
No, well, it is interesting to me to think, you know, Nehemiah didn't, as he was telling the story earlier on, he didn't mm-hmm. say, you know, for the next four months I prayed this and I prayed this and I looked for mm-hmm. this and I was expecting to see this. He just said, you know, it's just like four months later this thing happened. That's so. right. Yeah, and I guess when he was ready to move, he did it, and that was it. He didn't dwell on his wonderful success. Mm. He didn't dwell on anything. Yeah, that's true. It's like, and that success would have been meaningless if he didn't then act when the time came to go ahead and start building the wall because he didn't go back there just to be in Jerusalem and just to inspire the people. He went back to build the wall. Absolutely. So, so yeah, it was, he was all about production at that point. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, you know, it's possible that the brevity – the brevity of the speech makes sense if he did it the day after his his nighttime walk around the city. Well, I mean, for one thing, he was probably very tired if he hadn't slept and <laughs> didn't feel like saying very much. But <laughs> more to the point, um, he was he, trying to keep it quiet. And I mean, you know, the shorter the speech, the faster mm. he gets people mobilized. I mean, he goes from having you know a handful of guys who knew about this the night before to all of a sudden every single Jew in Jerusalem, and they're ready to start building now, 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 now. And so yeah, what yeah. better way is there to to take his enemies by surprise than to go from nothing to complete mobilization? Yeah, very good. But then verse 19 says the enemies didn't lose any time either, though. That is true. They apparently got together somehow, and they tried to discourage the people, the people who were who were doing all of this, and the tack they took was by reminding them about problems they had had in the past whenever they started rebuilding, how previous Persian kings had interpreted that as rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they're, they're trying to just drive a little wedge in there, like, you really want to do this? The king's going to think you're rebelling. Don't you want to, don't you want to be careful about this thing yet again? Mm-hmm. Don't you don't you want to think twice about doing this thing? Because remember how remember how it happened the last time. That's right. That's an idea. Okay. But Nehemiah recognizes what they're doing, and he doesn't allow them to bait him, which is great. I mean, he he has his eye on the ball the whole time, and it's it's all about God. He says in verse twenty, "The true God of heaven will give us success. We are His people, servants who will begin the work of rebuilding our city and this wall. But you have no share in this work because Jerusalem is not yours, civically, legally, or religiously." So you know he he's been sent there by God. He's been sent there by Artaxerxes. These guys are shaking in their boots for a reason, but he doesn't answer to them, and um, he, he just moves forward. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't let them bait him, as I let uh, you bait me earlier. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of bait. <laughs> no, that is interesting to me to think in terms of the, the three existing leaders, the, uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. The, the three of them they know the power of discouragement. They know yeah. the power of whispered words. They know that people, that uh, a sudden infusion of energy and enthusiasm and excitement can also easily be derailed if just the right word is said at the right time to turn that thing sideways. Mm-hmm. And so they're 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 stepping up and trying uh, trying their best to sort of derail this this enthusiasm that they see and this heart for the work that these people seem to have and they said you know you remember how the king felt about this the last time you tried to do 
things like this. Are you sure you want to bring that down on us again? Are you sure you want to bring people back in? And so they were trying their best to sort of just use the words. And it may be words were all they had to bring at this point. Mm -hmm. Maybe that That's they true. That they didn't necessarily want to step in with military force to try to to try to keep this work from going on because that would have invited Artaxerxes' attention then to the region. So, absolutely. What What do you see in this for us today? What do you see in What do you see in Nehemiah's character? What do you see in these men? That's something that we can take away today. What's the good news for the exiles? Um, well, I, there are a few things. Mm-hmm. I, I think the one that's sticking out to me the most is this: the, is the the dichotomy of patience and planning against uh, action, okay. and how this man of God, who has been called by God, knew when to use both of them. And, yeah, I mean, he obviously was sensitive to the prodding of God, and he knew when God needed him to act immediately, and he knew how to wait. Um, mm. So I, I guess I see in that an inspiration for a way I, w- I would like to be, because I'm pretty good at the planning part unless I'm feeling a call to action, and then I have a lot of trouble putting on the brakes. So, mm. you know, mm. that's a balance I need to discover for myself. I think all of us need that. All of us need to develop that that notion of sensitivity to what mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit's leading us to do. Because there are times when we want to act, and the Holy Spirit's saying, "No, no, hold off for a minute." And then there are times when we want to hold off for a minute, and the Holy Spirit's saying, "No, let's get to it. Let's get after this thing." Mm-hmm. It's so, true. and 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 you know, I I, I think about the. I'm drawing a blank on the reference for the verse, but you know, don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. I think mm-hmm. that's a psalm. It's either in Psalms or Proverbs. <laughs> well, it's a song stuck in my head now. I'm hearing like the hymn. There you go. There <laughs> Trust you go. in the Lord. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. You're welcome, listeners. <laughs> no, AJ that. and I won't sing for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there, there is that sense of, you know, some, sometimes all of your instincts might say to do this thing, but instead mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit's leading you to do something else. Mm-hmm. And and that's a that's a difficult it's kind of a tightrope for us to walk sometimes because we're not we it's a tightrope for me to walk anyway I don't know I may be the only one that struggles with this but there are times when I think in when I as I process things humanly speaking I say well this is the right course but then for some reason that right course doesn't seem right and I and I'm left with these questions and. I'm left wondering if that if that's the right thing for me to do or not. Yeah. Does any of this make sense? It, might- it absolutely does, and you're certainly not alone in that. I I know I'm there, and um, I have I have a friend who was dealing with some family issues and was discussing it in a life group and was saying, you know, I I don't know what to do to help her. I'm trying to figure out what I need to do, what I need to do. And a lot of people in the group were going around, well, you could do this thing. Well, this is the way you need to act, blah, blah, blah. And one gentleman looked her dead in the face and said, you know, maybe what you need to do is wait and just be patient. And that's all you're supposed to do right now. Hmm. And all of us were just like, whoa. (laughs) <laughs> because he was so right. I mean, all of us were grasping at straws. What can we do? What can we do? Well, maybe all she needs to do is wait on God 
to tell her what to do or, you know, to maybe not do anything. Maybe all she needed to do was be present, mm. you know, to witness things so that he could use her in the future. I mean, we don't know, but, you know, she's making herself crazy. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Well, maybe you just need to wait. Well, and culturally, that's hard for us to do. Oh, we, yeah. That's, you know, we, we live in a, in a, uh, a quick, decisive culture. We certainly celebrate uh, uh, bold leadership. We celebrate people who make who make uh, who make wise decisions, but who make them faster than other people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the business that's the fastest to market with the best idea is the one that's going to reap the rewards. So, so there's so much in our culture that's all about uh, speed with precision. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we get caught up in that as as believers, and and we think, well, you know, we we whatever the thing is that we need to be doing it, we need to be doing it right now, yeah. even if there even if there's a little check, even if there's a little a little thing in our thinking. And I think that's mm -hmm. the spirit of God saying, just hang on a second, just yeah, just ease back just a minute. All right, <laughs> what happens well, next week, Amanda? Next week we're gonna rebuild the walls. Aren't we excited? Rebuild the walls. Yes, we're going to build the walls next week. We're just going to look at Nehemiah 3. And, yep, see what all happens there. Get into um, get into a little scuffle with our three governors. The three bad guys. That's right. You can find Amanda Hope Haley at her website, amandahopehaley.com. You can find A.J. Farley at his blog, wornoutbibles.blogspot.com. Both of us are also available on various social media platforms. Unless otherwise noted, scripture quotations are taken from The Voice. Copyright 2008 and 2009, Ecclesia Bible Society. Thanks for listening.